Hey everybody, welcome to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Brandon at Way of Brandalore on Twitter, Instagram, and apparently now Mastodon. Oh, <laughs> I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM only on Twitter, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I got curious about Mastodon because I saw a bunch of people talking about it on Twitter, so I logged in and started an account. I still ah. don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. <laughs> Well, as I understand it, it's a large prehistoric creature mm-hmm. <laughs> related to the mammoth and the modern uh-huh. day elephant. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but speaking of elephants, let's talk about uh, the big elephant in the room. And that is the attempted uh, hostile takeover of Hasbro. <laughs> oh, my gosh. OK, so basically what what we're looking at here Brandon and I found a lovely Bill of Lost Souls article written by J.R. Zimbrano and uh, they're talking about how there's a Wizards of the Coast proxy battle as Hasbro slams spin-off plans and basically what it what it dials down to on a very TLDR level is that a 2.5% shareholder named AltaFox, which is known for being a little bit of an activist investor. Yeah, they're a capital asset management firm, uh, sort of like your classic um, Alden Global Capital type investor. Yeah, exactly. They are trying to convince a bunch of the shareholders for Hasbro to do two things at the same time. One is to vote out multiple board members and replace them with some people that AltaFox think are better qualified for those roles. And two is to spin off the Wizards of the Coast brand into its own entity once more, where D&D and Magic the Gathering and all of that can go go live off on their own space. Yeah, and they're talking about that move, like spinning Wizards out of Hasbro into its own independent business as quote unlocking like a hundred dollars in share value because i think i think today like the day we're we're recording this on the fourth may the fourth be with you all and uh hasbro's stock today i think closed at like 94 dollars and 15 cents um and they're saying that uh alta fox is saying that spinning wizards off would create essentially a second public company that would have stock valued in the hundred dollar range so i can understand the objective argument there but they've got uh, you know sort of classic predatory uh corporate behavior going on trying to force people onto the hasbro board complaining about people that are nominated to the hasbro board complaining about people that are on the hasbro board yeah there's a lot of uh there's a lot of talking about how the Hasbro board is ruining everything. And here are these individuals who'd be so much better at doing the job. And the I think probably the best part, and I'm gonna I'm gonna flip to that here, is Hasbro replying and saying, Hey, this is uh this is kind of a big situation. And you as shareholders need to be conscientious of how you vote when it comes to adding members to the board, because uh, there's a there's a lot going on here with AltaFox and they have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. And 
uh, Hasbro is talking about how the numbers that AltaFox is using to make its argument, they're um, they're saying that they're cherry picking it, uh, they're taking it out of the context of COVID over the last two years, really screwing up uh, a lot of things, including uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Like it's very. Uh, you know, uh, this is sort of a gut reaction for me, but I think it's very easy to understand a perceived underperformance in the Wizard brand over the last two years since it's been so much harder for people to get together and play Dungeons and Dragons, especially since a lot of people were making that shift into online play only because of COVID. So it was sort of a slow dragging effect. And I'll be the first person to say, I'm not sitting here looking at 24 to 36 months of a fever chart of earnings or anything like that. Um, I am not an expert in this kind of finance. My experience with these kind of things comes from working for newspapers for 15 years and always having the specter of a hedge fund like Alden Global Capital coming in to make an aggressive takeover attempt and then mine all the value that's possible out of the company, usually through layoffs and uh, other cost-cutting measures, and then selling it and piecing out and making their profits for the shareholders. Because that's the, that's the thing about a public company. The highest duty that the company has is to its shareholders. So technically, any kind of purchase attempt has to be considered or else uh, the person making the purchase offer can claim that the current owners, uh, the current management, the current board is not uh, exercising its fiduciary duty to its shareholders. The, the thing that baffles me a little bit is that some of the recommendations that Altafox is making for individuals that should be on the board are really wild people. Like the two, the 2000, the year 2000, I should say, championship Magic the Gathering winner. Yeah, and I think Hasbro even retorted to that. Like, we love his passion for uh, MTG. But that does not mean he's a good fit for the board. <laughs> like, they're well, really like, trying to be like, no shade on him, but no. It, it almost feels like uh, with with recommendations such as that, that AltaFox is saying, hey, we should have uh, we should have Wizards be a company that is for fans by fans. And that's I don't know, man. I've seen a lot of businesses try to run that way, and fans are not always the best business folks. I mean, yeah, like just because you love something doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be the best steward of it from a business perspective. Um, and that's not taking anything away from anybody. That's not saying, you know, just because you love D&D, I don't think you'd be able to run it or anything. Maybe you could, but I don't think that's necessarily a metric that you need to that that needs to be focused on for something like that well especially when we're talking about running a global company you you need someone who has a lot of experience working in global markets if they're going to be able to do anything that really really makes sense mm -hmm. and, and i'm oh, go ahead i'm not like a super big fan of mega corporations and constantly doing work for the shareholder and everything's about the bottom line but on the flip side of that hasbro is too big to be anything else at this point and honestly wizards even if it was its own entity 
wouldn't be that far off that same mark. Yeah. And I want to be really clear that this is at least where I'm coming from, Josh. I'm not going to speak for you, but maybe you're sort of in the same place I am. I'm not over here like standing for Hasbro or anything uh, based on this. Uh, I just, I don't know. I think it's kind of a, a specious and predatory argument that AltaFox is making. Um, you know, Hasbro has been a public company since 1968. They've owned D&D since what like 1997 they bought tsr something like that, that sounds right and i in the last eight years the popularity of DD has just exploded through fifth edition you know they just bought DD beyond so it's only be, going to become more pervasive i think because under their ownership DD beyond is probably going to get a lot more features we're probably finally going to see um the uh some sort of inclusion of D&D beyond content like if you buy the physical book you get a code for the book on there so you're not double paying maybe i'm being optimistic there that they would cut off a revenue stream of digital books but i i think that's stupid and uh mean to their fans so maybe i should maybe i should be part of altafox i don't know <laughs> but uh, you know, read. You should really read the Hasbro letter to its shareholders and the Alta Fox letter to the Hasbro shareholders, because it's very much two camps making their arguments to try to rally the troops for the vote. You know, they own two and a half percent right now. Are they going to be successful getting their three people on the board? Probably not. Probably not, because I don't think there's enough discontent with Hasbro shareholders to rock the boat like that. I don't think. I'm not an investor in Hasbro. If I were, I'd probably be paying a little bit more attention to its stock price. But I'm over here literally looking at the year-to-date stock price. And there's been a dip, but it's on the rebound. And if you look at it uh, over the last year, it hit a high point uh, in January and then it dropped. But when we're talking about a high point, we're talking about $103, $104 a share. Uh, it dropped to a low point of 88 and then a few days later, it's back up to 99. Today, it's 94. It's been a relative. It's been relatively stable. If you look at the five-year fever chart for it, it dropped to a low of like $46.11 on March 20th, 2020. And I think we all know why. Basically, every stock market fever chart in around the end of March 2020 dropped precipitously. But if you look at it since then, it's been on an overall steady increase. Um, and the fluctuations in the last probably three months are due, I would imagine, 100% to one, the, I, so I guess it's not 100%, I guess it's a series of percentages that add up to 100. But uh, partially toward, because of this AltaFox situation and the bid there, and then probably also buoyed by their purchase of D&D Beyond, uh, which affected it, and probably, honestly, some of the upcoming releases that people are excited for. So uh, I'm not a financier, and I was never a business journalist, so I don't pretend to understand a lot of this, but I do dabble in stocks a little bit, so I understand some of it. But read the Hasbro letter, read the AltaFox letter, read as much as you can to sort of decide where you stand on this. Well, here's uh, here's something that I haven't gotten into with you yet because I was saving it for the show. But I did notice in the Alta Fox letter, one of the things that they mention 
is that, uh, and it's in this this paragraph right here, they mention being very disappointed to see that Hasbro is committing so many resources to failing properties, up to and including a AAA G.I. Joe video game currently in development. Brandon, would you buy a AAA G.I. Joe video game? I mean, people have been buying a AAA G.I. Joe video game for the last 20 years. It just happened to be called Call of Duty. <laughs> so, I mean, you brand something like that, right? Yeah, it's going to be a winner. But it probably is in a more duplicative space in the market. I don't think anybody's clamoring for a G.I. Joe AAA title. I can only imagine that it's going to be some kind of uh, first-person shooter. I, I would assume so. I mean... For me, it depends on what they're going to do with it. But what Ulta Fox is saying is that it doesn't make sense to make a game from the G.I. Joe franchise because the movies have not been doing super great recently. And it's That's like, not because of a waning interest in the property. People my age would love a good G.I. Joe movie. We've just had two bad G.I. Joe movies. That's the problem. Yep. They, I wanted something that was campy like the 80s cartoon and just ridiculous like the rock was roadblock but he wasn't speaking in rhyme if i recall which that is one of my check boxes for an accurate roadblock um <laughs> it just they just weren't good movies that's the reason that nobody liked them and they didn't do well it's because they were doing too much to be too bland which in my opinion reading the alta fox statement letter doesn't sound like they're interested in re-energizing these properties because they're talking about like mismanagement of funds being spent on things like D&D &D. and it's like homie D&D &D is huge right now spend that money you will make it back and you know I don't want to get too repetitive I guess but Alpha Fox is a hedge fund they're not they're less the only reason they're concerned about mismanagement is because it directly affects the amount of profit they can mine out of the company without having to do any real work. So they're not concerned about the well-being of Hasbro or the well-being of Dungeons and Dragons or the well-being of G.I. Joe. They are, I guess, but only to the extent that they see a maximum return on minimum investment. Yeah which is classic hedge fund maneuvers tends to involve strip mining stuff so that all of the creative individuals and forces are like, well, I'm out of here because this is really awful. And then they just collapse the company after everything's been exhausted. And I'm not, I also am not going to sit here and stand Hasbro, but between My Little Pony, G.I. Joe, uh, Transformers is Mattel, isn't it? Like, I, I just haven't seen indicators that Hasbro is interested in strip mining its properties for every last red cent they can extract from it and pushing away creative folks for it. Josh, I'm going to stop you right there because I think you need to restart your router. Oh? I don't think I lost track of you at any point. Oh, but there's a little hiccup. Um, all right. I, well, I can't hear a word you're saying. 
me see. My connection's solid, homie. Can you hear me fine? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Yeah, you're just clipping it. It's like when uh, we have to tell Alex that she's having trouble on a QPR recording. God, I thought the new router would be rid of all of that forever. All right. It does on. no good to say anything because I can't hear you. I can't understand a <laughs> word you're saying. <laughs> See, now that I can hear. Well, hey. that's a very consistent noise. Hey, you, now you're it's working again. Of course it is. Yeah. So you just need to repeat that whole big rant that you had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh. I can't even think about like where the rant started. I will I will jump in. Hasbro has a lot of very large titles that are part of its IP. And of those large titles, I know we've got what? We've got My Little Pony, we've got G.I. Joe, we've got now all of Wizards of the Coast, which is huge, and uh, Transformers is Mattel, right? Um, no, Transformers is Hasbro. Oh, well, so you've got all these franchises. The movies have, on average, been terrible, especially the live-action ones. That's just, like, at this point, basically universally true. But the franchises themselves, the games, the comics the shows all of those sorts of things still have a lot of creativity built in they've got interested and engaged creative parties that are working on them companies like AltaFox, at least in my opinion have a tendency to jump in and try to strip mine material for every cent that they can extract from it and they tend to push creative types away very quickly because of that and Hasbro has been successfully managing all of these IPs for decades. Yeah. So some uh, some of the IPs that Hasbro has toy licenses for um, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Power Rangers, Star Wars, which I didn't realize. I also um, didn't realize that Ghostbusters. They've had that since 2020. Uh, let's see. They had Jurassic Park for a long time. They don't have it now. Uh, Light Bright, Lincoln Logs, um, the Marvel Legends series. Jeez, uh, some of this stuff, it, I remember it from when I was a kid, like Pound Puppies and Micronauts and things. Star, They have the Star Trek toy license. I mean, like, they're not just sitting around doing nothing. And you have to remember, Hasbro owns basically every non-independent board game. Because they bought, like, they bought Avalon Hill a while ago. Uh, so now they own like Axis and Allies and all those uh, war games and stuff too. Yeah. And they've been managing all of these IPs without pushing the creative talent out the door. 
which mm-hmm. is something that's pretty impressive for a company the size of Hasbro. Mm-hmm. And just to get out ahead of this, yeah, every company has controversies. So I'm sure there's some controversy with Hasbro about either their IPs or their behavior or something like that that we are unaware of. But we're trying to look at this strictly from sort of the business standpoint on this. Well, and also, you know, if if Hasbro has been seriously mistreating its creative force mm-hmm. and a lot of people have been pushed out, I have been completely unaware of it, which means that would be one hell of a smokescreen they managed to put up. I'll give Alta Fox some uh, free branding advice. If they really want to twist the knife and make this stick, they should start referring to Hasbro as has been. <laughs> No, I think I think that might actually hurt Hasbro's numbers, which is what Altafox does not want to do. Talking about the business aspects of all this again, um, uh, while you were um, resetting your router so we could finish this, <laughs> um, I looked up uh, some stuff and uh, Hasbro's net revenue fell 8% in 2020. Uh, largely because of COVID-19 shutdowns and everything like that. Uh, but Watsi posted a revenue of $816 million, up 24% from 2019. Uh, and it was because of record years for D&D and Magic the Gathering. Uh, that, you know, that has to be fueled by uh, people doing stuff online through COVID uh, in tw- like in 2020, getting into that. And the the digital the the Watsi and the digital segment of the company is uh, like 112 million more than the operating profit for Hasbro's entire consumer product segment. So that those kind of numbers are why AltaFox wants to spin it out into something else. Yeah, it sounds about right. You know, they're probably not wrong about a standalone Wizards of the Coast having a stock price around 100 bucks. It's totally possible. I just like, I don't know. Again, I'm not like, I'm not saying I'm in favor of it. It just sort of, I'm trying to look at it objectively. Like, yeah, that, that makes, that makes that kind of sense. The math adds up. But anyway, um, what, uh, what, uh, what are your closing thoughts there on the Hasbro hostile takeover? <laughs> Hasbro just very, very recently gave Watsi a little more like independent control over the brand because they were doing so well and performing so well it seems like the concept of spinning them out has less to do with what is best for the creative individuals at watsi and more to do with how can we maximize our stock prices and anytime that's the conversation i get really hesitant to be at all supportive of it as an idea if the concept was Wizards of the Coast should spin off into its own brand because then they won't be stifled so much by boardroom decisions, I'd be way more for it because that would mean more creative Wizards of the Coast content, whether that's magic, whether that's Dungeons and Dragons, whatever that might be. Yeah, I would also encourage people to check out the websites that both sides have dedicated to explaining their platforms on this. And this is other than just the letters to shareholders. Hasbro has HasbroGamePlan.com, where they basically are making an appeal to the shareholders and explaining it. And AltaFox has StrengthenHasbro.com, which 
in their letter, it's listed as free, free the wizards.com, but then it redirects to strength and Hasbro. <laughs> but I have a feeling the message is largely the same. I mean, sometimes you have a really good branding idea, but you've already committed to one URL. So, you know, <laughs> they didn't want to pay the extra 60 bucks for <laughs> the other <laughs> to host both of them at the same time. But anyway, so we've bloviated for about 25 minutes there on uh, something we are not qualified to talk about. Uh, but uh, let us know what you think. Do you like do you think it's a good idea for wizards to get spun out and stand on their own? It would be kind of a, you know, an interesting reversion to the days where TSR was a standalone business, but it would be in an entirely different gaming and geek landscape than it was in the 70s 80s and 90s that would be kind of interesting to see a, a watsi just completely untethered from any kind of other ownership but of course they would be it would be public and they would have a board most likely uh but it would be interesting to see but tell us what you think um uh shoot us a message on twitter or any other social media or join us on the discord at uh, bit.ly slash goblin discord and yell at us for our stupid opinions and just in case any uh, Hasbro shareholders are listening to this episode, I just want to say that nothing we've just said is financial advice. Uh, and just in case some Hasbro uh, board members are listening to this, um, we are interested in sponsorship opportunities. Uh, <laughs> you can get us at contact at goblinsandgrowlers.com. Thank you very much. Also, way of Brandalore on Mastodon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any of those are great. Yeah, but so one of the things we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago was sort of the the buoying of the stock price over the last few months based on various news. And one of the things we mentioned was, you know, sp stuff that people are excited about that's coming out. And one of the things that I know I'm excited about that came out uh, like a week or so ago uh, as we're recording this was that we're finally getting another classic setting release in 5e that's not another Ravenloft box set of some sort. We're getting Spelljammer. We're getting Spelljammer in fifth edition, and I am pumped about it. Spelljammer's back, baby. We're talking sailing ships in space. We're talking space, comma, ships. We're talking illithids flying around in weird, like, seashell-shaped ships. We're talking beholders that aren't just crazy monsters. They're crazy monsters, but they're different kinds of crazy monsters. <laughs> that, that was one interesting thing about uh, Old Spelljammer, and we'll talk about this uh, on the next episode, but they took all the different interpretations of Beholders and turned it into basically a civil war among Beholders in space from the different kinds of Beholders, and it was really cool. There's a lot of really sweet stuff you can do once you're willing to use space as a background yeah. Now, obviously, this Spelljammer setting coming out through for 5e was no surprise to anybody who was paying even a modicum of attention, because I think it was a few months ago we talked. Uh, I mean, it was longer than a few months ago because it was in 2021. But we talked about the Travelers of the Multiverse Unearthed Arcana that came out. They could have just put a big headline at the top that's like, get ready for Spelljammer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, because we spent a lot of time talking about the Astral Elf, the Autognome, the Gif, the Hadazee. Uh, and then also they threw in the Thrycreen, which, you know, that tells me that Dark Sun might be the next one that comes out. But I think it was like the Autognome. We were like, why is this thing so overpowered? 
Yes. Yes. I distinctly recall being like, this is ridiculous. This is insane. This isn't even starting to account for class specifications. Yeah. Before we even started recording that episode, you were like, I read one of these and I think you're probably having the same reaction I am to having read it. And I said, <laughs> yes, I am. And we'd never talked about what it was. We just knew it instinctually. Well, I think I think we could see in each other's eyes the rage building about how overpowered that race it just was. Felt, it just felt really unbalanced. Uh, but we'll get into the details here on what's coming out with the Spelljammer set. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're probably already aware of it uh, because we don't have any filthy casual fans, I don't think. <laughs> I'll tell you a couple of reasons that I'm excited about this. I have made no secret about how the one thing, well, I miss a lot of things, but one of the main things I miss about sort of old D&D, &D, and by that I mean the D&D &D I sort of grew up playing, and you know, at those times in your, li in your life, the way a thing is at that time can really crystallize and become the reality of it for you. One of the things for me has always been like when a setting comes out and it's just a big deal setting release, like your Curse of Strahd or something like that, those kind of things should come in a box. They should come in a box set, like the old Forgotten Realms box set, uh, the several Dark Sun box sets, the several Ravenloft box sets. Uh, this is going to be essentially the modern equivalent of a box set. It's got the whole, the full set is gonna have three books. It's going to have color maps. It's gonna have its own Spelljammer DM screen. And it's gonna come in a, like a slipcover sleeve. I think that's as close to a box set as we're going to get with uh, modern, like the modern Wizards of the Coast releases. I think it's just more cost efficient to do it this way than to have it as like an actual book with the, um, it's more cost efficient and it probably gets them a higher profit margin too because they can charge more for it. But three hardcover books that are like 64 pages each, I think, uh, and then you put it in the sleeve to protect it. It looks fantastic. I'm so super excited about it. Um, you know, if you're watching this on video, Josh, you can scroll up just a little bit and see a picture of it. Anybody else who's listening to this on audio, it's just dnd.wizards.com slash products slash Spelljammer. But who are we kidding? You've seen it already. You don't need us to tell you about it. Um, <laughs> but it's great. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be too expensive either. That's the thing. I think it's going to be for the set. It's like $70 for all this. I feel like they could have charged like Beetle and Grimm prices for this, like a hundred and something. Well, let's let's not assume that they're not making those sorts of plans as well. These oh, they Strahd absolutely are. They 100 percent <laughs> are. But I I'm just kind of surprised that they're starting off with this at sort of this affordability tier. And I'm not sitting here saying that $70 isn't expensive. $70 is super expensive. That might be your gaming budget for three or four months. Like, that's a lot. You can buy a lot of third-party stuff for $70. But this looks like, and I've been very critical of Wizards over the last few years for charging the prices they charge for things like Xanathar's, which is a really thin book. And they're charging, you know, what, like $30, $40 for it. This actually looks like something that is worth the money to me. Like, if they had done Curse of Strahd like this, I would have been all over it. Like, I was happy just to get the book, but that really, for the legacy that that property has, it should have been released in more of a, I'm not going to say this is a prestige format because it's not, 
um that's what your beetle and grim is for but it, it should have been given this kind of showcase and i think maybe they realized that after it started selling really well because they just you know they've kept going back to that ravenloft well you wanted a little more pomp and circumstance with curse of strahd which i get i get. yeah i want more pomp and circumstance with settings like I never played Eberron because Eberron came out in a time when I was not playing D&D, but it's a setting that so many people love and it's it's different from a lot of others. Like it should have had something like this, too. I agree. I think if you're going to release a, a full setting, it needs to have this kind of pomp. And if you're going to do something like Xanathar's, like a supplement book, then you can do that just as a standalone book. I think that's reasonable. So... For those of you not on video and those of you who might actually be the filthy casuals that Brandon is referring to, the the three books you've got Adventure that covers levels five through eight. You've got a 64 page hardcover for DMs that presents uh, game statistics and descriptions for over 60 creatures found in Wild Space in the Astral Sea. And then you've also got the Astral Adventurer's Guide, which is another 64-page book for your players. So you've got the, the DM's Guide, the Player's Handbook, and an adventure module all in one big set, along with the poster and the DM screen. Yeah, and so the like, poster, the poster's cool because it's a double-sided poster. And it's for the Rock of Brawl, which I guess they're positioning to be kind of like the sigil. Uh, like, are you familiar with Planescape at all, Josh? Did you ever play in the Planescape setting? I don't think I ever played in Planescape. Sigil is like a city in like in that setting that's sort of like the central location for everything. Um, think of it as kind of like a, a, a Baldur's Your Gate. Your Waterdeep. If you're play yeah, or Waterdeep if you're playing on the Sword Coast instead of, you know, the remembered the remembered realms instead of the rest of the forgotten <laughs> realms. Um, so I think that they're setting up ro the rock of brawl, this asteroid to be that kind of like home base sort of branding type thing. That's going to be sort of the central location for the setting. Uh, but it's they cool do... that they're including a poster sized map of it. Yeah. They describe it here as it is somewhere that can serve as both an adventure location and a campaign hub. So I think you've got exactly the right idea based on what they themselves have said. And the DM screen that comes with it is a four paneler instead of a three paneler. And I love four panel DM screens because it means you can actually have one of these hardcover books unfolded behind the screen without the screen getting too wonky. Personally, Which, I never use the charts on the back of the screen, but I want to be able to use the screen. I mean, if it's got some useful tables and things like that, I don't use those sorts of things super frequently, but on the occasions I've wanted to refer to one, I've been really thankful that it's there for me. Because flipping open the book so I can check conditions for the 34th time is no fun. <laughs> and as always, uh, speaking of money grabs, with uh, uh, a Wizards release these days, they've got the alt covers that are coming out for them in that sort of more artistic design. Uh, one of them's got a GIF on the cover. One of them's got an astral elf. And then one of them has, uh, you know, a space, a, a giant space hamster, which is another trope of the setting. Uh, people are probably most familiar with the miniaturized giant space hamster Boo 
from Baldur's from the Baldur's Gate game in the 90s and thousands of other reappearances as a reference to that over the last 20 years. Uh, one of the books is named Boo's Astral Menagerie, so I believe we will be getting some Boo-centric writing in that particular book. Yeah, so the yeah the Astral Adventurer's Guide, that's going to be essentially the adventure book for it. Or no, wait, that's yeah, that's the campaign setting. Uh, that, that is has, that is your PHB. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Astral Men Boo's Astral Menagerie, that's going to be your monster manual, and then the Light yep. of Xerix is the adventure the for levels five through eight. I'm definitely keen for this one. I really enjoyed some of the stuff that they did with the, um, oh gosh, the name's escaping me right now. With the, there was the plane that had all of the chaos and the carnivals and the trains. Oh, you're talking, are you talking about that um, Ravenloft release? Yeah, I just can't remember multiple... I keep wanting to say Multiverse of Madness, but that's the Doctor Strange film. Yeah, that's not it at all. That's not <laughs> it at all. But yeah, I mean, we should also say this is coming out in August. I think the release date for it is August 16th. I have already placed a pre-order for mine through my friendly local gaming store. and Which we would encourage you to do the same because Amazon doesn't need more of your money. What are you looking forward to in this, Josh? Space travel on sailing ships. I want space pirates who are traveling with you and I am explicitly expecting that they will be reintroducing Phlogiston as a material that you use for traveling between the spheres. Mm -hmm. And the big thing with Phlogiston is you can't use fire anywhere near it. And so I'm just, I'm loving the concept of a space battle where everybody has to use cutlasses and axes, etc., because no one wants to explode. Fire your crossbow at the spaceship. Yeah, it'll be like Treasure Planet. I'm so excited for that. I like. I'm looking forward to some Errol Flynn action. I've I've never <laughs> actually played in a in a space the Spelljammer campaign just because at the time when I when it was a thing. Uh, my DM was running Forgotten Realms and I was still in high school, so I didn't have a really broad social circle to have multiple multiple groups that I was playing in. But it's always fascinated me. Uh, and I just, you know, I love the idea of how, like, it was designed to kind of connect the different... It's it's all on the... It was all on the Prime Material plane and it was designed to connect all the different settings, like your Greyhawk, your Forgotten Realms and all that stuff. I think they're doing it a little bit differently now, um, at least from what I've read so far, like, for example, it doesn't look like it's set on the prime material plane anymore. It's set on the astral plane, but it still has that kind of Ptolemaic cosmology where uh, everything you know, like whole star systems exist with inside the sphere and you have to make your way through the sphere like that, like the, the, the shell of it before you're out in open space and can sail on the phlogiston. My understanding of the Phlogiston is that it creates a sort of sort of a hyperspace element to it so that you can get between spheres very quickly. And while you could travel by more mundane means, it would take years to do it. Yeah, it's like warp speed versus impulse. You know, we talked about this not coming out until August 16th. Um, I'm looking at uh, comicbookresources.com and their story on what to expect from 5e Spelljammer. 
one thing to keep an eye out for is in July, Spelljammer Academy is going to be available to everyone with a Wizards of the Coast and a D&D Beyond account. And it sounds like it's going to be sort of uh, an intro adventure on how, essentially how to play in Spelljammer because it'll teach you the fundamentals of navigating the ships. And uh, it possibly will, it looks like, according to the article at least, looks like it might be sort of a session zero essentially f that launches you into that Light of Zarius, uh, Zarex adventure. Uh, kind of like uh, the Haunted House adventure uh, that leads you right into Curse of Strahd, I'm guessing is what what it's kind of going to be like. That would make sense. That'd be that'd be mm -hmm. very nice to have, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, for Strahd, that was really nice. It was really good as a way to sort of set the table for the tone to expect from that adventure. So having something like this, where maybe you have sort of a uh, a high seas, high space kind of adventure would be uh, really good, especially for folks who've never played in it before. It was also pointed out that some folks who might not have been familiar with Spelljammer visuals may be familiar with Spelljammer ship visuals all the same because the Dark Alliance video, the video game for, was it Baldur's Gate? Baldur's Gate 3 is what I was thinking of. Thank you. Okay. Uh, that has the ship that is a nautiloid that has illithids all over it as it features very prominently in the trailer. So mm -hmm. even if you haven't seen any other Spelljammer stuff, you're familiar with at least one ship design right out of the gate. And I think in Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there was uh, a section where if the party gets down to it, there is an illithid Spelljammer, like a nautiloid illithid Spelljammer that's like in the dungeon. That sounds right. And I think there was something else in Tasha's that was like the blue veil or something. What was it called? And yes, I'm I know I just lost. said Illithid Spelljammer, but Spelljammer is the proper name for a certain ship. So yes, I know that was wrong. <laughs> how could you, Brandon? Uh, yeah, how dare I be slightly imprecise <laughs> on what I'm talking about. <laughs> about this children's game that we all enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Dream of the Blue Veil spell is what it is in Tasha's. That okay. is also a Spelljammer reference. Josh, did you watch the um, announcement trailer that they put out for the 5e Spelljammer? I didn't... I haven't watched the trailer yet. I instead watched a very interesting video that I think we'll be talking about more in the next episode about interviewing the creator of Spelljammer and how involved he was in this particular concept. And uh, spoiler alert, he wasn't, but he's also yeah. not mad about it. Yeah. Also, spoiler alert, uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about second edition Spelljammer, the OG Spelljammer. The, uh, talking about that announcement trailer, I thought it was really goofy and dumb and didn't really tell me much. <laughs> um, it was it's it's like a cheaply animated cartoon. And I'm sure if anybody takes offense to me calling it a cheaply animated, they will say, oh, well, it was they were doing they made a stylistic choice. And saying that you made a stylistic choice is a very artsy way of saying you did it cheaply, I think. And I say that as somebody uh, who worked as an artist for more than a decade. I think that's fair. I think also it's 
tough to justify spending a ton of money on a trailer for a tabletop RPG. Are you kidding? Did, don't you know that Watsy's profit is like more than half of Hasbro's <laughs> entire operating budget or whatever I said? Yeah, but how do you think they keep those profits so high? It's not by spending all that money on trailers. Well, that's what it was. Like they were, they knew Alta Fox was looking over their shoulder. So they're like, man, we better not spend too much money on this trailer. Or that's going to end up as another bullet point in their list of mismanagement sins. Oh, my Lord. I just said that, but thinking about it, Magic the Gathering has some really amazing trailers for all yes. of its new releases. Yes, so they do. Who am I kidding, actually? Like, books have amazing trailers. Like, there's a trailer for a Patricia Cornwall book on YouTube. It's wild that those kind of things that get <laughs> high quality trailers. I was driving to work the other day and there was a billboard for a Patricia Cornwall book. What? Yeah. What I was going to say is uh, looking back on the uh, the official Wizards page uh, for the Spelljammer thing that's coming out, they say format uh, campaign collection. And that's interesting to me because does that mean that this is going to be like a new thing? Maybe depending on how this sells, they're going to have these campaign collections. I think I think this is a this is a twofold statement. I think thing number one is that Wizards is trying this out to see how well it does. And thing number two, Wizards plans to offer each of these individual items separately, with the exception maybe of the DM screen and the map. And that 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 would be interesting because these are only, like we said, 64 page books, which is very that's a very thin tome to pay your money for like this this leads me right back into my complaints about the cost of like xanathars and stuff because you know if you if you take away the um dm screen and the map and let's just pretend like those don't exist uh and then you take the 70 dollars and you divide that by three then you get about 23 24 per book um but i would think it would be 30 if they sold them individual retail uh, or at least that would be MSRP for it. So you are like, it is a better, like that's how much they would sell it for. Like they would not sell these books for like $24. I don't think it would be like 30 something. So you probably are getting a really good deal by buying it in this campaign collection format. Well, let's, let's theorize that they sell them for 25, which is just that, that little clip just above the mark. Even then 25 bucks for 64 pages that's a lot. That is a lot to ask somebody because that's like that's almost a buck for it's a little over a buck for every three pages. Yeah, it's like 39 cents a page. That's ah, that's a big ask. That is a it big is. ask. And that's it for is. me who has some money to spend occasionally. Oh, you know, one more thing about that trailer. I know I'm jumping around, but I just thought of this. So I did watch the trailer. And uh, it's it's basically this whole sea shanty kind of thing. There's uh, what I'm guessing is some kind of astral elf or something. At least I, the ears sort of make him look like an elf. But the whole the story of it, uh, and it's told wordlessly, is that he really wants to go home. Like he's really looking forward to go home, but he's really enjoying being out sailing space with his crew. Uh, and he's wanting to get back to his parents, and he sees them through his spyglass, and they're there with his with his hamster, and 
then all of a sudden a, like a bottle lands on the ship and it uh, cracks open and there's a map inside it so they immediately turn the ship around and go off sailing to find the treasure and it zooms up on the hamster with these just sad sad eyes because he realizes that his friend is getting ready to leave yeah that's the picture there for anybody who's watching on video uh josh has put it up on the screen but uh it was just it was funny to me because they were showcasing the different races in Spelljammer. Like there was a Hadouzi that was manning the sails. Uh, I believe there was an autonome, if I remember correctly. And then there was a, um, a GIF. And the funniest part about that to me was the way the GIF was dressed. You know, they're, they're hippopotami, uh, basically. And the way it was dressed, it looked like the hippopotamus from Harvey Birdman, attorney at law who wore like the pith <laughs> helmet. Like, I swear it was wearing the same clothes as that, as that hippopotamus. Did, did you get that thing I sent you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, that's a real non sequitur there, but. Uh, also, I believe it's pronounced GIF. Uh, not according <laughs> to the creator. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go above and beyond uh, what I said before because I keep seeing this image and I keep being like, God, that's so freaking cool. And then I keep not thinking about talking about that image, which is, look at this. Look at them riding a dragon in space and there's space fish that appear to be on fire. Mm -hmm. That's so freaking cool. I'm really yeah, excited I'm... for some of the creatures. <laughs> it's going to be so cool. Yeah. And I guess that's that's Minsk riding the dragon, I think. Yes, Minsk and Boo. I could not remember Minsk's name. Believe me, I played enough Baldur's Gate. I I remember Minsk and his purple face tattoo. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this uh, because it's to me is a really good signal that Wizards is like, yeah, OK, we're feeling comfortable. We're going to start putting some of the weird stuff back out there. Um, getting away from that elves in the forest kind of fantasy that really like is fine there's no nothing wrong with it but it just doesn't resonate to me as much as it used to just because i sort of live in that so much now uh i was whenever... gonna say you might be more excited about elves in the forest if that wasn't all the campaign settings wizards has put out for the last like 20 years yeah exactly i mean that that's what i'm getting at basically um I'm always excited when something new comes out. And granted, I'm aware that this is like 30, 30 years old, 20, 30 years old at this point. But it's new relatively with the 5e product line. It's something different. Um, Strahd was something different, but it was still kind of in that same fantasy realm. This is something very different. And if Dark Sun comes out in the next six to 12 months, that'll be also something very different. Um, w one thing I would love for us to talk about is um, the spiritual successor to Dark Sun that the Dark Sun creator put out um, called Dragon Kings. Put that on the list. Um, it's a uh, it's just a setting book. Like there's no system or mechanics or anything to it. It's just purely a setting book. And I think that's really great. Um, but anyway, that's a non sequitur. Uh, but anytime somebody takes a swing at something different, I'm all for it. Even if I hate it, I'm all for it. And, you know, when Jeff Grubb pitched this sort of spell jammer idea, it was something different. And he pitched it because it was something different. And we'll talk about that next time. Uh, 
So I'm all about it. Bring on the weird stuff. Give me a whole brand new weird setting. Um, you know, hopefully we'll get Dark Sun. Hopefully we'll get some kind of version of Planescape soon. And then hopefully we'll get stuff that's just completely new and off the wall that I can't even think of right now. This is also, I think, and part of what I'm so excited about with it as a possibility is this is an opportunity for wizards to expand the map a little bit beyond the Forgotten Realms as well. Because once you've got Spelljammer, then you can justify your party visiting any planet in any setting and having it all be cohesive with one universe. And so having this kind of as a door opening, it feels a little bit like when the Marvel Cinematic Universe was like, yeah, we're making the multiverse a thing. We're, we're bringing it on. There's a lot of possibilities that stem out from that that don't involve sticking to the same formulas because you can still have the settings that are in that same formula and then you can have something that's radically different and completely off the wall and you can have a justification for both of them having a lot of the same elements all as well. It's a great bridge to really go hog wild in some sort of D&D sandbox. I'm excited about it. But anyways, you can tell us how excited about it you are or how much you hate marketing videos uh, by <laughs> uh, tweeting us at Way of Brandalore on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and apparently Mastodon. <laughs> or you can tweet at me at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Uh, we're also Goblins Growlers on Twitter because somebody whose name I won't mention because it's me uh forgot the password for at goblins and growlers and has never bothered <laughs> to retrieve it and you can also join the discord at bit.ly slash goblin discord and tell us how stupid we are that's right folks you hear the stories about someone trying to get a twitter handle that's really specific and then they can't because someone else took it haven't used it in years and won't give it up no that's us we did this to ourselves these days i'll do it but we also have at goblins growlers on a bunch of stuff now and i don't want to have to go back and change all of it so we've kind of <laughs> painted myself into a corner on that one i blame myself uh but anyways everybody thanks for joining us on this we'll be back next time to talk about old school spell jammer uh and just what a crazy uh fever dream that that thing is hell yeah all right we'll talk to you all soon thanks bye y'all